Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. All right, praise the Lord. It is time to get started. Last sip of coffee, y'all. And as you grab your seats, we will go to the Lord in prayer. Lord willing, we will be getting to the end of chapter 13 in the book of Romans. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, as we quiet down and you quiet down our souls and our minds and still us with your love, your wonderful presence here among us, we acknowledge that you are here, Spirit of Christ, to work. This is serious business, a life and death admonition to us today at the close of Romans 13. May we have ears that can hear, eyes that can see, and a heart that can understand, put these truths into practice so that our lives can be transformed. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. It was a December morning back in 2013, the worst trail derailment in U.S. history. It happened in the Bronx. I've got a picture here from the news story. There were 115 passengers on board, Sadly, four of them died, 61 were injured, $9 million in damage. The cause, the engineer dozed off, fell asleep. The train took a curve at excessive speed and derailed. Falling asleep when we should be awake can prove to be a very dangerous and costly thing indeed, both in the physical sense and in the spiritual sense as well. And the Bible uses sleep as a metaphor for those who are unconscious spiritually. They're asleep to the things of God. They are morally drowsy. So they cannot hear the voice of the living God who speaks through his word. They cannot feel the prompting of conscience because they're out of it, right? They can't get the Spirit's guidance for wisdom because they're asleep and they're taking a cat nap. They don't see the consequences of foolish behavior. They aren't alert to the many dangerous toils and snares that accompany our path. And so, because they're asleep, they take the curve at excessive speed in their life derails, and a lot of people suffer. And so, I think I have a picture of the news article there. That's the results of falling asleep at the wheel. Not only do you risk your own life, but the lives of those around you for whom you are responsible here in a physical sense, but it is also true in the spiritual sense, and we're going to hear all about that this morning in our passage before us in Romans 13. Thank you for that picture. So Romans 13 is now finishing up some practical moral exhortations uh, that are uh, fitting for the people of God because God, and we've been hearing this all through Romans, God has done so many wonderful things for us on our behalf that it's only right and fitting that now we find out what we can be doing for him. And the Christian life is a response to the mercies shown us. And so the Christian life is about thanking God in gratitude for a salvation that's free, 
If we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone, it's not by any good deeds or works, lest any man boast, as Ephesians tells us. And so, finishing up now these exhortations, we've been told, first of all, that when we offer ourselves back to God, the first thing we need is a submissive heart. We respect and honor all forms of authority in our lives, a submissive heart. Then he went on to say, we need a loving heart, that not only are we going to love those we like and are good to us, but we're going to take it up a notch to God's love that loves even the wicked and the ungrateful, as Jesus said, that we will bless those who persecute us and love our enemies. And if we find our enemy in need, that God's love, we would help that person. And so a submissive heart to respect authority, a loving heart that loves even its enemies. And now he concludes by saying Christians must have a pure heart, that Christians must live a morally pure life. And the way that we're going to do that and anything that God requires is to stay awake to rouse ourselves from spiritual slumber and moral drowsiness and be alert, vigilant, and self-controlled. That's what we need, and that's what we're called to here at the end of Romans 13. Check it out. Starting in verse 11, and do this, all of these commands that I've just summed up, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you, and he's speaking to Christians, to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So then let us cast off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime not in wickedness and drunkenness, sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, instead of that, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And there you have it, the close of Romans chapter 13. A wake up call, courtesy of the Holy Spirit, to all of God's people, not just the believers there in ancient day Rome. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from evil. Paul told that to Timothy, and it's available there in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. Let anybody who names the name of the Lord, I love the Lord, I know the Lord, I'm going to heaven, whoever has that flowing from their lips, must depart from evil. Paul goes on to tell Timothy that that saying, departing from evil, those who name the name of the Lord, is the inscription on the foundation stone of Christianity. The foundation stone of your life as a Christian who's going to heaven, the foundation that's holding the whole thing up has a motto on it. Whoever names the name of the Lord must depart from wickedness. That's who we are. The Lord says through his word, he says, be holy, for I am holy. For without holiness, no man will see the Lord. And it's not because we are trying to be holy to see the Lord. It's that we have seen the Lord. He has made us holy. And now the holiness that's flowing out of our lives is evidence and proof that we truly are citizens of heaven. And so he's going to talk about this need to live moral lives. And the way to do that is to stay awake and not to doze off. So really, these thoughts here that you're looking at, these few verses, really divide quite nicely into three ideas, note takers. It's time to wake up, it's time to cast off, and it's time to put on. All right? Those are our three points. Let's isolate out those first few verses and dive in. It's time to wake up and put these truths into practice. So there you go. He says, and do this, live for God in all of these submissive, loving, and morally good ways. 
as you understand the present time. That's pretty important. So, you know, it's hard to live for God. We all have brokenness. We're surrounded in a world of darkness and unbelief. We have a heart that is, the Bible calls wicked and rebellious, and it survived our conversion. And so with the Holy Spirit's help, we are called to constantly put to death those desires, but those desires still are in there. And so since it's so hard to do what God wants us to do, because we are kind of broken in that way and fallen, uh, he says, let me give you some motivation. And the motivation here is that we're at the end of time. And so in light of the present time, understanding the present time, that word chronos for time means God's timetable. So, you know, if Jesus were here, he'd probably say something because he said something of the sorts of, you have ears, I see that you have two good ears, do you hear? Do you, you have eyes, but can you see? And maybe he would add today, you have gadgets to tell you the time. There's a, there's a clock on your phone. There's a clock on your wrist. There are several clocks in this building, but can anybody tell me the time? The time, God's time, the prophetic time time. What is God doing in the world? What is he up to? What comes next? Are you ready? Do you know what time it is? Understanding the time will elicit from you godly and moral choices. Because what? You're thinking, you're awake. You understand what time it is. You see, Jesus looked at the Pharisees who are Bible experts. They memorized most of the Old Testament. And he says, you guys amaze me because you can predict the weather. You're pretty good at looking at the sky. You got all your formulas down and you can tell what's coming tomorrow weather-wise, but you can't tell what's coming spiritually. He goes, how can that be? You've had 300 signs to tell you that the Messiah, the Son of God, is standing in your midst. 300 signs, old Bible experts where I'd be born, Bethlehem, to whom? A virgin. Where I would be raised in Nazareth, he shall be called a Nazarene. Isaiah chapter 9 says he'll do most of his ministry in Galilee. On and on and on and on. And he would say, do you know what time it is? It's Messiah time. It's time to get your house in order. It's time to stop being asleep and take this thing serious because you understand the present time. So maybe a question to ask yourself during this sermon is, do I really understand the present time? And so the things are getting closer. That's what he's saying, that the God has set a timer and it's about to go off. That's what he's saying. It's inevitable, and when it does, it's swift and fast and sudden and somewhat unexpected, unless you know the time. Christians are privy to the will of God because we have the revelation, 22 chapters of it. We know it's coming, so we have no excuses to be asleep because in light of the end being at hand, Peter says the end of all things is at hand or near. How can he say that? Because God has promised. It's coming. It's inevitable. So in light of that understanding, the hour has come for you to rouse yourself from your moral drowsiness. Been there, done that, because tick, tick, tick. Our salvation in this case means the fullness of the day. He says the day is almost here. That's the second coming, our salvation. The fullness of it is nearer now than when we first believed. And so we sing, the clock is ticking. You may have been distracted. You do your job. You go here and there. But tick, tick, tick. He's closer now than when the sermon started. That's the kind of attitude he's saying. Be ready, be awake, be alert. You can't live the Christian life and avoid all the pitfalls, the dangers, toils, and snares without being awake. And so certainly the New Testament writers thought his appearing could be 
in their lifetime. He says, this salvation, verse 11, is nearer now than when we first believed in Christ's physical, visible return, which every eye shall see, is coming. It's imminent. He says, Paul's point is that day can come at any time after the Messiah appeared the first time. And once he appeared and took care of business and paid for the sins of the world, he ascended and two angels said, don't look so glum. Acts chapter one and verse 11. Don't look so sad. This same Jesus is going to be coming back in the same glorious way you've seen him ascend. Now, all the Jewish New Testament writers know what that means. Well, he's coming back. They all know the dozens of scriptures in the Old Testament that say, well, what happens when Messiah returns? It's called the day of the Lord. And so in that regard, the next event, what time it is, started with the angel saying, he's gone, but he's coming back. Time starts now. Just what Peter said on the day the church was born. They said, you guys are drunk, making all of these sounds, and you guys are crazy. And he says, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk. But this is what Joel chapter 2 means, that in the last days. So he's saying, what you see here is defined by Joel chapter 2 as the last days. So from the New Testament's point of view, the last days started, the clock is ticking, and Matthew 24, they say, hey, what are the signs that, you know, you're going to appear? He says, let me tell you. I'll tell you. And he rattles off a bunch of signs. Check, check, check. They're all done. Except the tribulation. When he's talking about the tribulation, we're not here. He's talking about signs. Nation against nation, brother against brother. Worldwide epidemics of health. Natural disasters increasing. One hiccup of a wave killed 225,000 people. One hiccup. One earthquake, boom. A quarter of a million people died. He says, when you see that happening, check your prophetic time clocks and you will know that I am near. Now, what's good? What good is a heads up if you don't do anything about it? So he says, understanding the present time, you're looking around, Matthew 24, check, 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 check. He says, when you see the cursed fig tree start budding, that's Israel. Israel's the fig tree. Israel's always the fig tree. It had been cursed. And he says, but when you see it, bud, oh, watch out because your redemption draws nigh is near. And Israel, after 2,000 years, 2,000 years, you could have never said, well, he must be near because Israel's there. Israel wasn't there for 2,000 years. And now, in your lifetime, Israel is there and budding, 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 budding. This is time for you to be squabbling in your marriages and making mountains out of molehills and pursuing your own selfish ambitions at the expense of God's will. Is it time for you to be looking at porn and perishing with the rest of the guys in the world? Is it time for you to be committing adultery and thinking on, the, on foolish and, and perverted things in your mind? Is that the time? No, he says, check the time. Israel's in place the nations are in place. The signs have been checked off. He says, when you see it, know that it's near Jesus' words, even at the door, then is it time for a spiritual nap? No, it isn't because it's closer than ever before. You say, well, you know, they've been saying this for years. When Jesus closes out Revelation 22 and says, by the way, I'm coming soon. That word has all of these flavors. Fast and sudden, furious, unexpected, unstoppable, unavoidable, inevitable. That's what he means. And now, Peter says, hey, he's not being slow. He's being patient. And besides that, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day to God. Think about it. A thousand years versus forever. Think about a million years times 10 million years, get there in your mind. And then times it by 10 more million. Then times that when you get there. 
times 100 million. Okay, then you get there, you run out of paper, folks. You run out of the, the printer's done. You know, there's nothing left. Look at that to 1,000 earth years. So what does this mean? I think it means, look, he's been gone two days, 2,000 years. We're at the dawn of the third day. Hmm. God likes to do things on the dawn of the third day, right? And, you know, since I'm on the subject, it's been 6,000 years exactly from creation. We are going into the seventh millennium. Millennia. Millennial. Thousand year period. <laughs> We're coming up on the number seven. We're coming up on the number three. Two of God's favorite numbers. With Israel in place, he's just saying, check the time, check the time. Are you just going through your life? You're tacking on Jesus as your Sunday little hobby. Oh, how nice, and you're trying to love your neighbor and all of that. But you're not engaged. You're not really engaged. He says, though, the night is nearly over. The day's almost here. It's time to wake up. Now, after you wake up, he says, we have something for you to do. It's to cast off. Let's look at that. Now, I've pulled out all the negative things, the things to cast off or to stop doing from the things that we put on and start doing. So you can see the text is a little bit awkward that way, but just for our talking points. So he says, let us cast off the deeds of darkness. <laughs> Let's talk about this. Now, from God's point of view, he thinks that when he gives us knowledge, he gives us a heads up, that that is going to translate into change behavior. So, you know, for example, the weatherman says heavy rains, you know, your heads up. Okay, knowledge equals action. Get the umbrella. Okay, good. If you're on a golf course and you hear four, you know, you know the knowledge comes in, you hear, and you do something. You go... You know, because sub ball is coming your way. If you get word that there's an inspection on Friday for such and such, you make sure such and such is looking good, right? So what good is it if you know the time and you're asleep at the wheel of your spiritual life with God? What does that say about you? So, because the end of all things is near and is at hand, Jesus is closing in closer than ever before, uh, then we need to put the pedal to the metal. And this is what he does. And how you do that is point number two, cast off. It means to put off or to step out of or to peel off these deeds of darkness. So when he uses the word deeds there in verse 12b, it means really language, thoughts, actions, and motives that belong to the darkness or to the light, to the night, uh, but they don't belong to us. That's not who God made us. That's been there, done that. We used to be all about the night, all about the dark, and then God, in his mercy, called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light to declare his praises Right? Second Peter tells us that is true. And so uh, let me show you about the light-dark motif. He says, listen, you're supposed to do things. You get rid of the dark things because that's not who you are. First Thessalonians. Now, brothers and sisters, you know very well that the day, there it is, that's coming. The night's almost gone. The day is coming. It's almost here, he says. The day of the Lord will come like a surprise, a thief in the night. Nobody's expecting to be robbed in the night. While people are saying in the world, oh, peace and safety, everything's cool. Destruction will come on them suddenly, and they're not going to escape. But you, brothers and sisters, you're not in darkness, so that that day will surprise you like a thief. And here it is, five and six. You are all children of light. The light of the world came into your hearts, right? And now you're children of God, children of the day. That means daylight and, and honesty and integrity and moral goodness is what you're all about. 
describes you is characteristic of you. Continuing on, we don't belong to the night or the darkness. That's not our gig. We don't do those things anymore. So then let us not be like others. We cast off those dark deeds that so easily entangle us. He says, we're not going to be like them who are asleep at the wheel, taking curves way too fast, risking derailment and a lot of pain and suffering. But let us be awake. There it is again. And sober-minded, vigilant. Okay, thank you. You can go back to our verses. Why, why does he say the deeds of darkness? Because these are deeds done in secret. Now, the problem with deeds done in secret is that God is an all-seeing God. The psalmist in Psalm 139 writes, darkness is as light to thee. And then Hebrews follows that up in chapter 13, I believe, or verse 13 of chapter 4 by saying, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So one of the motivations for us to put down those nasty things that always want to spring up in our Christian lives is the fact that the day is coming and we will see him face to face and he will judge, quote, the secret deeds of our hearts. Now, when he does that, that will add to the condemnation of those who are perishing and it will subtract from the reward of those who are being saved. Yes, indeed. Though we will never be put to shame, whoever calls on the Lord will never be put to shame. But our secrets that will be judged, and they will be judged, they're called wood, hay, and stubble. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, he says, we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and the day, there it is again, the day, will test the quality of every Christian's life. And the fire will just burn away the things that didn't count, the little secret things. And whatever is left will be your reward. Nobody will end in condemnation or shame, but we will be justly recompensed for all the good and faithful things and all the unfaithful things. They will be dealt with and we will forfeit what could have been ours had we been more faithful. This is a reason to stay awake, he's saying. Stay awake. Rouse yourself from your slumber. And he's talking to Christians who have been made alive and awake by receiving Christ, by faith, by grace, Christ alone. But here's the problem. We have spiritual narcolepsy. And let me explain what narcolepsy is. It's a terrible disease where attacks of sudden sleep come upon you no matter where you are. And you just pass out and start sleeping no matter what. And because we live in a dark world, because we have a dark fallen heart and a sinful nature, we are prone to little spiritual siestas. You know, have you ever gotten somewhere, you drive into the parking lot of Costco, and it just dawns on you that you don't remember how you got there. You, don't re- you do not remember driving there. You, you know, yes, that happens. Why? Because your brain just says, I got this. Been doing it a long time. Just you can check out and think about lunch or whatever. I got this, right? Oh, that's pretty dangerous. And what happens is, is that the devil comes by to a Christian who should be awake and connected to Christ. They're certainly saved. But you know, they lullaby you. They know your favorite lullaby. And maybe you got your feelings hurt or you got offended. Oh, yes, let's put you to sleep for a little. Take a little break. You deserve it because you've been hurt or you've been disappointed. And life went to the right when you wanted it to go to the left. So let's just go to sleep. And while you're asleep at the wheel, here comes the curve and you commit adultery. Or you look at your porn. Or you go out and get drunk and run somebody over. 
or you tell a big fat lie, get yourself in trouble and everybody else around you. Why? Because you cover your, went to sleep. How many of us have been asleep as Christians or know somebody who, who wrecked their lives because they took a little spiritual siesta? The fact that he's saying to Christians, wake up, O sleeper, and Christ will rise and shine upon you, is the fact, plain and simple, that Christians are prone to falling asleep at the wheel. It's a willful choice to, he says, make sure this doesn't happen to you so that you could cast off these deeds. Let's talk about them if we must. They're nasty and ugly. There are so many lists. If you are a note taker here, lists of vices are everywhere in the New Testament. Romans 1, 29 through 31. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 2 through 4 gives you a list like this. Now, the first four, carousing and drunkenness, sexual immorality and debauchery, uh, the commentators say, these are sins that will wreck your life. They are akin to, they say the umbrella word in English that would be perfect to describe all four of those nasty words would be partying. Okay, so if you think of spring break, on some godforsaken beach in Florida, that, my friend, when you see clips of that on the news, you just know all four of those words are alive and well in Daytona, Florida. <laughs> Debauchery is a word we don't often use. We, it just sounds awful because it is. I believe I have it here. Debauchery. Check this out. It's a downward spiral of ever-increasing sensual indulgence with no regard for honor or duty, conscience or God, self or wife or children or anybody else. That's debauchery. And that's what's encoded in every human heart. Me want it. Me get it. Well, what about your wife? Me don't care. <laughs> what about your job, man? You're gonna, you're, I mean, they talk to them. So what about your consciences? What about your job? You're risking, you're risking your job. Me don't care. Me get another job. <laughs> what about your Christian witness? What about the press Democrat? What about the shame? What about your children? What about the church? Me don't care. Me don't give no rip. <laughs> and me needs a grammar lesson. Because me, a caveman, me like an animal, me gets a prompt and me does it. Why? Because you're a brute beast. And that's what sin will turn a man or a woman into an animal who would stab his own mother in the back to get what he wants. That's how it is. It's spiritual insanity that needs to be cast off. How do we cast it off, you might ask. I brought the key verse in there. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Here's how it is in Bible simple. It's not always simple to carry out, but it's very simple. He says, don't make provision for it to happen. In other words, if you nip it in the bud, you get the me want to be self-centered right now. Me don't care about marriage encounter. <laughs> Whatever it is. It comes up in your mind. And you say no. You don't make provision. You don't give it. You don't nurture it. You don't provide a road for it to, to, to go from immaturity to maturity. You cut it off right there. But here's what commentators say, and you're not going to like it because it's insulting. It says, listen, about most Christians, Christians who fall into these kinds of sins are, among other things, undisciplined 
thinkers. They live life on the surface only, emotionally and spiritually. They are immature. They lack wisdom that comes from exercising one's mind in Christ to think ahead past the sinful impulse to the painful consequences. As a result, they they could have changed the course and averted God's displeasure, but like little children, they don't like telling themselves no. That is the problem. It's not hard to tell yourself no. What are you thinking? No, stop. Don't gratify. Don't think about it. Change the subject. Think about things that are right and true and noble and excellent and worthy of praise. Let your mind dwell on these things and the God of peace will be with you. Take every thought captive and cast down vain imaginations and every pretension that exalts itself before the throne of God and pull it down by the power of the Holy Spirit. The problem is it's not hard to say no. It's that we don't want to say no. That's why I like to start my day. My eyes open up. Here's my prayer. God, help me love the things you love and hate the things you hate. Because I will do the things I love and I will avoid the things I hate. But you've got to help this wicked heart to hate to be self-absorbed and covetous and insecure, and petty, and critical, and all of the other things. Easy to say no. Not so easy to not want to do what the wrong thing is. God, be merciful and change our hearts and keep us awake so that we can cast these things off when it's just a thought you're done with it. Amen? Amen? Let's finish up here. On First, we wake up so that we can cast off, so that we can put on. Now let's do the positive here. Let us put on the armor of light. Yeah, what a concept. Let us behave decently like we are. Children of the Most High God, children of light, the daytime. Honesty, genuineness, above reproach, with integrity. Blameless. Verse 14, and clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Three things here real quick. Let's end by talking about one, the armor of light. Two, behaving decently. And three, clothing ourselves with Christ. First of all, he says, put on the armor of light. That is wonderful. Paul uses the armor as a metaphor a lot. If you're taking notes, you'll find it in Ephesians chapter 6 and 1 Thessalonians 5. You know, he's chained to soldiers a lot because he's a terrible person. He's always breaking the law and doing wicked things like telling people all about God's love and helping them find a way out of God's wrath and into eternal life. Just awful. You want to lock a guy up like that. And so they locked him up, and he's, that's called sarcasm. Sanctified. <laughs> so he's saying that looking at the armor, he's saying, wow, you know what? When we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness, right? And we are protected. So I started thinking, what does it mean to wear a weapon? That's what he's saying, to clothe yourself with a weapon of light. So Ephesians chapter 5, he defines what he means by the fruit of all light, he says, exists in all that is good, true, and right. Now the word good, so I got to know how to live in light so that I can have this weapon available that's on me, right? The word good there just means it has that moral sense of not defiling yourself. It's just full of mercy and grace and kindness and love. And then the word true is what I really like. That when we, if you're going to get the benefit of the armor of light, you have to live true. Listen, true to the self that God is making you. Not the self you were born with. Not the fallen self. 
You don't find yourself. You lose that self and find the self that God has raised you up to new life. And you're true to that. That's what living true is, is that you live in honor and truth and uh, integrity to the purposes of God with the new life. That's what true is. In fact, I've got a uh, pretty good example of that. There's a guy named Sam Alberry. He's a scholar. He's an internationally known uh, conference speaker. All of the major Christian organizations have him come in to speak because as a Ravi Zacharias loves him and uses him. In fact, he's uh, with that ministry. But the reason why everybody wants him today is because he has come out of the gay lifestyle. And he is the go-to guy for the theology of all of how does that work. And he gets persecuted something fierce. I was reading his blog, and he was talking about how everybody denounces him who haven't come to a knowledge of the truth and see his testimony as an insult to everybody else who's remaining in that lifestyle. Well, here's what he says. He's always being accused of, uh, hey, you still struggle with it. And he says, yeah, of course. Do you struggle with your, anybody struggles with their sins. And they say, you're being a hypocrite because that's who you really are. And he says, no, that is not who I am. I was born broken. I was born again and given a new life. And God wants me to be true to who I truly am by God's design. He says, I'm not a hypocrite. I have been called to pick up my cross and to deny myself, pick up my cross and follow my leader, Christ. And whatever behavior is inconsistent with the born again, new life, new creation, that must die. And I am, when I am true to the old, I am false to my Christ. We are called to be true. That's what's walking in the light. And the last thing that Paul said was right. When we live in a right way, and this means correct thinking, biblical feeling, biblical acting, biblical speaking, all lining up with God's will and what's pleasing to him. And that makes us wearing light and being protected by it. Well, think about it. Of course, when you live what's good, true, and right, you're protected, right? There'll be less divorce. Two spouses coming into my office saying, you know what? Here's the problem. We're just trying to outserve one another. All we do, all we do is I wake up and just think, what would make him happy? And then he wakes up and he says, oh, I just want to live for her and cherish her, you know, and I put her, yeah, no, guess what? That's never happened. <laughs> Because that, my friend, would be a weapon of light, right? But what I do here is the weapon of darkness. Me, myself, and I, my needs, my needs, my needs. He always, he always, he, she never, she never. Big babies. <laughs> I, this, nobody from this church. Less citations on the freeway, less pain, less trouble, less problem in the workplace, less problems in the pews. Now, the word here, decently, he says, let us behave decently. That's a great word. It means fitting for the profession. In other words, I know Christ. How do you live? I live Christ. For me to live is Christ. Philippians chapter 1. Fitting Decently means fitting for the profession, appropriate for the claim. I believe in God. Well, James says, don't tell me you believe in God. Show me you believe in God by how you live. That's what the word decent means, that your lips match your life. Your talk matches your walk. That's how God expects you to behave. Not perfectly, but blamelessly. Above reproach, it means nothing to hide, everything in the light, Upfront, genuine, no hypocrisy, no ulterior motives, no playing games, blameless. That's what it means. I've got an illustration here 
I was at that vocational college for a few years, and the admin came in after winter break and gave a lot of people a heart attack by saying, hey, guess what? We're doing a surprise search on all of your work computers. We're doing histories. We're going in. You think you're good at clearing your history? Hmm. We'll see about that. Because it was an IT school. So, ooh, these guys know how to get to the bottom of things. And you know what? I saw guys have full-on panic attacks. I saw a guy with beads of sweat all over his forehead. And guess what? His place was empty the next day. What a joy to live decently. He says, as in the daytime, that your phone can fall into your wife's hands and nothing comes of it. Because you have no secrets. You are who you are. Your strong things, your bad things, your weak things, but it's all out in the light. You're just limping along in the right direction. You're really a born-again Christian. Decent. Like Daniel. Daniel, it says about Daniel, they could not find corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. There were some guys who were jealous about Daniel. He got promoted above them. And so they were looking for ways to trap him. And they said, We'll never be able to do it. The only chance we have is to force him to violate his conscience toward his God because he'll never do that. You gotta live decently, blamelessly. And then finally, finally, he says this intriguing things. Clothe yourselves with Christ. Now, that's interesting because we have Christ on board, but he's talking to Christians and he says it in other places. We need to be constantly clothing ourselves with the one that we already have on the inside. Oh, now we're going to start to understand why he's telling Christians to put on cross, put them on like a coat. Now, how do we do that? What does he mean? Well, I was watching a news talk show, News. And, and it broke to, you know, talking and reporting about the Hollywood uh, awards that recently happened on the red carpet and all of that. You know, the Hollywood award shows, they're not really award shows. They're protest activist shows. But um, <laughs> what? And so there they are. And they flash one of the actresses, lovely woman, on the screen, on the red carpet, and here's what the announcer says to the other announcer with the actress standing there. The question was, who is she wearing? <laughs> who is she wearing? Who is she wearing? The answer was Armani. Armani. She's wearing Armani. Ah! Well, it's helpful to have the sermon going around in my head because I'm like, aha! That's what we're talking about that we would be able to, Paul says, you wear Christ. So that when somebody looks at you, the way you're behaving, the way you carry yourself, the way you're looking attractive in character, who are they wearing? Who is the bride of Christ on the red carpet? I'm telling you what, there's going to be more glitz and glamour and red carpet where we're headed it's going to make Hollywood look, look like they're having a power outage, all right? It is going to be super crazy, wonderful. And he says, that day is almost here. You want people to be looking at you and saying, who are you wearing, man? It's the vibe. It's the way you're talking. It's the way you laugh at certain things or don't. It's the way you love the way you do business, it's the way you speak to people, it's the way you treat your wife and your husband. That's how we wear him. And all he's saying is, you've got Christ on the inside. Work him out, word. Work out your salvation. Do you see? Cooperate so that he's on the outside in your mannerisms, in your life, in your worldviews, and all of that, so that people might see and reflect. I close with this one. This is a fun one. When missionaries get together, was, we were missionaries for four years in Japan. And when missionaries get together, one of the fun things to talk about is language and culture, 
problems that happen, and I've got some funny stories. But this one happened with a guy, and he was telling the story, and he said, I was at this Japanese house, a beautiful Christian home fellowship group, and he was actually staying with a couple. He couldn't speak Japanese at all, and they couldn't speak a lick of English. It was arigato, and that's it, you know. And so he kept, he knew a little bit of Japanese, and he kept hearing the couple say to him, uh, something like, you smell, right? <laughs> and so he's like, man, I, so why am I keep hearing the verb to smell, right? And they're saying, yeah, no, you, 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 you smell, you smell. And so he's like, man. So a bilingual missionary came through, and he said, oh, 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 I want to know. They're they, they always saying something to me about I smell or something. So he turned to him in Japanese and was asking him, why are you using the verb to smell, to smell? And they looked confused like, oh. The wife says, oh, we can't understand a word he's saying, but he has the aroma of Christ. Do you see? So he, what was he wearing to dinner? He was wearing the Lord Jesus Christ. And they caught a whiff of that. You see, we don't need to understand him. We get it. We get it. Now, if any of this is going to happen for us, we have to be awake. Spencer, shock us with the train again. Look, raise your hand if you know a Christian that has been involved in one of these derailments because somebody has fallen asleep at the wheel. Raise your hand. Let the record show. Most of the hands are here. Is that going to be you? Listen, here's the news. God knew it was coming down today. He arranged for you to get here and hear this. And he, by the Holy Spirit, took my feeble efforts to communicate his wonderful word, and he brought that powerfully into your heart and illuminated your spirit and your mind to know, gee whiz, is it time? Do you know the time? Have you been snoozing? Maybe you should rouse yourself in this area of life. And he has been clear to you. You must put this into practice not because it's a threat, but because it's a wonderful thing. And it is the answer to all your longings, all your prayers, all your sanctified hopes, all of your dreams that you truly don't even know you have. They will only be realized as you wake up, as you cast off, and as you put on. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your mercy and your guidance and your love and bringing us here today and just sitting us down and just saying, let's be real. Let's talk about staying awake. God, we have all been guilty of napping here and there. So help us, God, not to do that. To show us 24-7 how to stay awake and alert at the controls so that when the curves come, we'll slow down and take it safely. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.